I want to talk this evening about another of the important strands that make up our experience, continuing along the list of the five aggregates of clinging. So following on from uh, rupa, usually translated as materiality or form, physical experience, and vedana, uh, sometimes translated as feeling tone, but referring to the spectrum from pleasure and pain, lots of neutral in the middle. The next aspect of experience that the Buddha recommended we pay attention to is called sanya in Pali, sanya, which is usually translated as perception. Um, Some other translations are sometimes used. We may see uh, recognition, conceptualization, ideation, distinguishing, apperception, discernment, or sensing, or some others as well. (laughs) It's a diversity of opinion on the best way to translate the term sanya. Usually perception is used in English. Um, Linguistically, the word sanya is related to our words for sign and sense. One of the traditional ways of describing the function of sanya, a perception, is that it makes a sign or it records a sign of an experience so that we can recognize it and remember it and connect it with other related experiences. One simile for sanya is that it's like the process of a carpenter making marks on pieces of wood as they cut them so that later on they'll know where each one goes and what its function is. So uh, the carpenter doesn't write out on each piece of wood that they cut, uh, okay, this one is for framing the window on the left side of the southern wall, you know, (laughs) that would just be too cumbersome. So instead they have various ways of making um, a quick shorthand notation with a number or or special signs that they've developed so that they can record quickly what that piece is for and then also interpret it quickly later when it comes time to put the item together, to put the building together. Some of you uh, might know of uh, the Carter and Stevens farm near here in Barrie. It's one of the main features of the town. Uh, They're very interactive. They have various things for the public uh, to come and do at the farm, including a few years ago, they built a craft brewery. (laughs) One branch of the family decided they were going to be enterprising and expand the family business. Don't get any ideas. (laughs) Um, But they didn't build a totally new structure for the brewery. That's not their style. Um, Instead, what they did is they bought a historic barn from some other neighboring farm in the area, quite old, um, from the last century. And they took it all apart, you know, broke it down to its individual timbers, and transported it all on trucks over to their farm, where they poured a new foundation and reassembled it. It was a really neat process to watch. Um, Before they'd gotten it put back together, when all the pieces were just lying around, I had a chance to go over there and just kind of check it out. And what looked to my mind, you know, my untrained eye is just random heaps of wood, pieces of wood. Um, I could see on each piece it had the the carpenter's mark, (laughs) exactly what... Uh, they were speaking about from ancient times, and maybe some of you have experience with construction and know more about this. But indeed, all these marks, you know, they were able to separate all the pieces and, and reassemble everything in exactly the way that it goes. And actually, now that it's up again, um, you can see on some of the pieces of wood, there's actually the old marks from the last century, from the, the first time that it was put together. So I think this is actually a pretty apt metaphor for describing the role of perception in our experience. I think of sanya as that function of mind uh, that creates order, it creates meaning, Uh, it creates, makes sense out of the onslaught of sensory stimulus that's constantly coming at us. So it creates order within the mayhem. 
it assigns meaning to everything that's relevant so that we can make sense of this world that we inhabit. And we can put all the pieces together in a way that allows us to function. In the Pali Canon, Sanya is most often described in this way. This is just one excerpt, but it's often presented this way. It says, why do you call it perception? Because it perceives. Thus, it is called perception. What does it perceive? It perceives blue. It perceives yellow. It perceives red. It perceives white. Because it perceives, it is called perception. Uh, And this is why we need Dharma talks. (laughs) What are they talking about? But so there's this identification in the text of perception is a very uh, simple, fundamental faculty of just recognition, really. Just recognizing. We look at something and we recognize what's its color, if the eyes are working. Uh, It's not that we're thinking about the color, per se. We're not analyzing the color, probably. Uh, We're not deciding what the color is or judging what the color is in an intellectual way. But there's just that immediate, direct recognition that fits that sense experience into our model of the world. It's red, it's blue, it's yellow, it's white. Very simple, very straightforward. Not having the thought it's blue, but recognizing the color before we even think about it, Um, or regardless of whether we think about it. Most of our perceptions we don't follow up on with any really fully formed thoughts. Perception is just there, mostly operating in the background, uh, making everything make sense. Perception is what makes the world make sense on a very fundamental level. Probably many of us here have heard Joseph Goldstein's um, Big Dipper explanation of cognition. I'm not sure if he still uses it, but back in the day he used to mention this one a lot. So if we go out on a clear night and we look up at the sky, um, there it is. That certain arrangement of stars. It's the stars that make up the cup, the the dipping part, and the stars that make up the handle. And it has that very particular shape that probably immediately comes to mind when I mention it. And for those of us uh, who have been raised in a culture, like with this one, where that arrangement of stars has been pointed out to us and, you know, illustrated in our children's books and, you know, and just pops up all sorts of places for most of our lives, um, it's impossible not to see it, (laughs) you know, it's impossible not to perceive it. It's that immediate pre-verbal recognition. We may then have the fully formed thought, oh, there's the Big Dipper, (laughs) but we may not also. We may just look and have the perception, the recognition, without having the thought follow on. But the perception will be there either way. That ability to perceive patterns uh, in a very abstract way is is a distinctively human trait. I don't know that it's a uniquely human trait, but it's definitely a very particularly human trait. Um, You know, we see shapes in the clouds. You know, every civilization creates constellations out of the stars. Um, We see uh, images in rocks. You know, modern psychology makes makes use of ink blots. You you can show us just a modeled piece of paper and we'll find something in it. Uh, Mary and Jesus and uh, Elvis pop up uh, all over the place. (laughs) And toast, uh, you know, and potato chips. Uh, because that that faculty of perception, abstract perception, it's it's so powerful in us as humans. It's part part of what makes us powerful. I've been noticing uh, again, as I often do when I'm here, um, the patterns in the doors. Have any of you noticed how fascinating they are? Um, I remember uh, when they were building the forest refuge, uh, the discussions around the doors, they were, they were all handmade, custom-made by a skilled craftsperson that did a lot of the, the woodworking here. And I, I know that great care went into selecting 
<laughs> the particular pieces of wood to put on the doors. Um, you know, with that great care that this place was built, that they should be beautiful, you know, in, in a simple and nourishing kind of way, uh, along with everything about this place. And uh, when we get quiet and we move about the building and we encounter all these different doors, they're really like Rorschach prints. <laughs> You can see all sorts of things in them and different things at different times. One year I'll see one thing and I'm just like, it's so obvious, that image, you know. Or, you know, and then the next time I'm here it'll be different. Perception is another mental activity like Vedana that's said to be happening in every moment of consciousness, that it's a universal feature of consciousness. So it's not something that we can turn on and off. Um, We wouldn't want to, really. Uh, The functioning of perception can get uh, a little wacky when we get into the formless jhanas, as some of you know, um, especially when we get into the eighth jhana, which is called neither perception nor non-perception. But that's a little bit off topic. But certainly in every moment that we're having some kind of ordinary sense experience in in the sensory world, whether it's in the tactile realm of the body or in the visual realm through seeing or through hearing, tasting, smelling, or through uh, our mental activity, through any of those six sense doors, uh, the process of perception is sorting it all out for us or trying to as best it can recognizing what's familiar, uh, collecting information on anything that seems novel or unfamiliar, filing it away for later reference, um, chugging along, trying to fit everything into our familiar uh, reference frame, creating a meaningful framework for what's being sensed. Uh, The Thai forest monk, Ajahn Suchicho, calls Sanya, he likes to use the term felt meanings, I kind of like that translation, felt meanings. It's just what we feel things to to mean, what we feel their significance to be. Sometimes I look around at the visual field, you know, like here in the hall, or just wherever I happen to be, and just notice perception doing its work. You know, so if the eyes are working, we look around at the light, the colors, the shapes that are coming in through the eyes, and a perception just sorts it all out for us. It makes sense of it all. It's really quite amazing, automatically, without any effort. You know, none of us is confused about which portion of this visual field we're supposed to walk on. None of us is confused about which portion we're supposed to sit on. You know, none of us is confused about, you know, where we need to go to get more air into the room. You know, the perception, the faculty of visual perception has got that all sorted, all sorts of meaning just in opening the eyes, looking around, and we know. We know what the meaning is. We know what the order is. It's amazing. When I tune into that, um, I really feel a great sense of gratitude, um, especially as I get older, (laughs) because, you know, it may not always be so. Of course, if I take off my uh, glasses, uh, then I feel tremendous gratitude for my optician. (laughs) It takes quite a bit of augmentation of the functioning of these eyeballs in order for visual perception to be able to make much of the visual field for me and for many of us. And in fact, there are many circumstances that may impair the functioning of perception. If a sense organ is not working at full capacity, then we may not be able to perceive much or anything through that sense door. Uh, If some function of the brain is impaired due to illness or injury or age, uh, then we may not be able to perceive much or anything connected with that particular function of that aspect of the brain. Many of us, have brains that for some reason are not wired to be able to easily perceive uh, written language visually. Uh, Probably quite a few of us here have brains that are wired in that way that makes it difficult for us to recognize the the shapes, the patterns, the order, and translate them 
into the, the verbal words that we know. There's some really interesting uh, quirks of the brain. Um, some people apparently have brains that aren't wired to be able to easily recognize faces. The perception of faces is impaired, so they may see somebody over and over and over again every day and never be able to recognize them by their face. There are some interesting cases of people who uh, are born without a certain sense faculty, without sight or without hearing, are common ones. Those sense doors didn't function initially for some reason. But then at a later time, medical understanding advances, technology, technique advances, and doctors are able to restore the missing sense. They're able to restore vision or restore hearing. And it's interesting how uh, many people who have this experience, they find it totally overwhelming to have that sense door opened, to have it reactivated after not having had it for their whole lives. Um, Often they report it to be an experience of complete chaos and disorientation. They can't make sense of that onslaught of color, light, shape. They can't make sense of that cacophony of sound, even very quiet sounds. Um, That's because the the faculty of perception for those sense doors hasn't been developed from birth. They haven't learned how to, the brain hasn't learned how to make sense out of it all. So the faculty of perception is one that we begin to develop very early in our lives, uh, even before we leave the womb, before we're born. Uh, We know our mother's voice. We can recognize our mother's voice. It's familiar. It's comforting. We like to hear it. Uh, We can recognize other voices that are often in the vicinity that we hear over and over again, or sounds that we hear over and over again. Parents are often surprised at how just how unperturbed their infants are by uh, the noisy dog or the sound of the vacuum cleaner. When uh, I was pregnant with my daughter, there was this one album of music that I used to listen to over and over again. Uh, It's not particularly uh, cultured, (laughs) not particularly refined. Uh, There wasn't any particular reason for her development for me to do that. I just had a craving to hear it over and over again, so I listened to it a lot. Um, And it was interesting, after she was born, if I put that music on, she would perk up in this this very distinctive way. She had this very, you know, kind of noticeable reaction to it. And even now, she'll sometimes ask me to play (laughs) that album for for her. She just asked me recently. There's something about it that she just finds, she still perceives as kind of familiar, soothing. Once we're out in the wide world, uh, outside the womb, uh, we learn very quickly to recognize the things that are important in our world. You know, so not just the sound of our mother's voice or our caregiver's voice, but uh, their scent, their touch, uh, the taste of uh, our mother's milk or whatever food we're being given for sustenance. Uh, all of those sense experiences that we associate with safety, comfort, pleasure, we very quickly incorporate those into our understanding of the world. One of our first important tasks developmentally is the cultivation of perception. We really need to quickly learn how to make some sense out of the world around us. There's a lot of um, these studies that show that babies will look at novel objects. And if you show a baby a series of objects, an infant, and one of them is something they haven't seen before, they'll stare at that one for much longer. You know, just automatically babies are very heavily engaged in the business of building up their perceptual model of the world. Um, I noticed this too also with my children. We had one of those, uh, they're very hip right now, one of those these mobiles with black and white images on it. You know, you can hang different little black and white pictures on it that are very abstract, most of them. Um, as said, to help with this development of perception. And again, it was very striking if we, well, the day that we changed out the pictures and put a new set up there, the baby would be like, oh, that is so interesting. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so this is a big early developmental task that we all work on. 
So it's a very early function of the mind. It's a very necessary function of the mind. And just as with Vedana, with the feeling, the sense of pleasure and pain, it's highly conditioned. So how we understand the meaning uh, and the order of our sense experiences has everything to do with our culture, our family, our language, our personal experiences, and all of that. What's important in our experience, how it's important, what our experiences even are, uh, the sights, sounds, taste, and everything that we encounter is going to vary dramatically from place to place, time to time, person to person. The Buddha compared the felt meanings that we get through perception to a mirage that appears in the shimmering heat at the end of the hot season. In a parent meeting, an apparent ordering of experience, but still very subjective, very ephemeral, very conditioned. And in fact, we see all the time that perceptions are often inaccurate. They're often based on uh, incomplete information, inaccurate information, or based on previous experiences that don't really apply to the present situation. Uh, some uh, kind of famous examples from the commentaries talk about uh, this as being like walking down a path and seeing a snake on the path in front of you and getting very scared. Oh no, there's a, there's a snake on the path but then looking a little closer and seeing, oh, it's a piece of rope. (laughs) So that's a very common experience. There's the famous story as well of uh, the the blind people and the elephant, a very famous parable that shows up in a lot of Asian uh, mythology or teachings, uh, that uh, our our perception is very dependent on which part of experience we're actually tuning into, how we're perceiving it. So, you know, one person who can't see encounters the uh, trunk of the elephant, and they say, oh, this, this being is like a, like a snake. Or another one encounters the ear of the elephant, and they say, oh, no, no, it's like a fan. Or another one encounters its leg and says, no, you don't know what you're talking about, it's like a pillar. <laughs> and on like that. So very few of us, uh, seldom if ever, really have complete information on which to base our perceptions. They're highly conditioned. Despite the best efforts of my optician, um, I still often have mistaken perceptions in my visual field, especially around the kind of the periphery, around the edges of my vision. Um, So a lot of the time I have phantom images, something's behind me and it seems like it's over here, or my depth perception is not so good around the edges. I think there's a step there and there's not. (laughs) which gets increasingly dangerous as I get older. (laughs) But uh, even so, seeing is still my dominant sense. Um, Perception of hearing is less clear or less comprehensive for me than vision. Um, It's good enough to get by, but the degree of uh, sharpness and the degree of accuracy is not as good as with seeing. I've been noticing here during the quiet times, especially sitting here in the hall with the noise, noises of nature coming in from outside. Um, I live just a little bit south of here in the mid-Atlantic area, and there's some of the bird calls that are very familiar to me. You know, I can perceive, I can recognize immediately what they are, but there's other ones that are not. <laughs> the mind doesn't quite know what to do with some of them or some of the bug sounds I don't recognize. Just before um, I came up here, I was sitting with my son. We were up a little bit late at night uh, since school is out and reading. And all of a sudden we heard a blood-curdling scream. <laughs> and we both kind of paused, you know, in a moment of alarm, moment of shock, and looked at each other. And he didn't know what it was, and I didn't know what it was. And, you know, I had this moment of panic that someone in the neighborhood is being mugged and brutally stabbed, and uh, i got to get the phone so I can call 911. Uh, and then a couple of moments later, I reflected and I realized, oh, it's the fox. I don't know if any of you ever, ever heard a, a fox screaming, <laughs> the call of the fox. Um, we have a lot of foxes in our neighborhood. It's very hard to... Um, keep chickens, but the, that's the sound of a fox's screech sounds uncannily like somebody screaming just in horrible pain. 
And my first perception, you know, it gets me every time. My first perception when I hear that, even though I've heard it many times, my first perception is still always, oh my gosh, something's wrong, I need to call 911. <laughs> so my perception, you know, my conditioning hasn't caught up with the current conditions. I'm, I'm interpreting things in terms of past experience that doesn't apply anymore. Maybe eventually one day, I've heard that cry often enough that the the immediate perception will be, oh, the fox, rather than, oh, murder. One of the things that makes uh, perception interesting and important for us as yogis is that not all perceptions are created equal. Not all perceptions are created equal. So some perceptions strengthen, develop, and perpetuate ignorance. And some perceptions strengthen, develop, and perpetuate wisdom. So perception can be part of the process that contributes to suffering, or it can be part of the process that contributes to peace. Perception's role in ignorance has to do directly with its function, which again is to to recognize similar things, to identify present experiences based on past experiences, um, which we can think of that process as a process of generalizing, generalizing experience, grouping experiences together into ones that are related, um, mushing them together, really, because they become very firmly connected to each other in our perception. So, for example, we might see certain colors, uh, black, brown, white. And along with that, we might see certain shapes, small oblong, small protrusions. We might see certain movements, quickness, then stillness, darting and scurrying. Uh, We might hear certain sounds, peeps and chirps. Uh, We might have a sense of certain texture, soft and furry. So we sense all of these experiences happening together. And if we sense them together repeatedly, then we'll file them away in perception under the heading of chipmunk or whatever our word for that set of experiences is, including our name for it. That also goes in the file. And this is very convenient. So every time we have that set of experiences, we don't have to figure it out again. That would really be very cumbersome very burdensome. So every time we encounter that set of experiences, we don't have to wonder, what is that? We don't have to reprocess it all. We don't have to interpret it again. Uh, If we want to think or talk with someone else about that set of experiences, we have a quick and easy way of doing it. Uh, We have a shorthand label or concept for it, just like the carpenter's marks. So, so far as that goes, so good, you know, we're actually very fortunate if that's working well for us. It's very hard to navigate through life if it doesn't. There's this common um, plot trope that's found in a lot of stories, you know, over quite a lot of time, the the trope of someone with amnesia, the amnesia device, you know, where there's a character that wakes up one morning and they just can't remember who they are, where they are, what they're doing, what what their life is. Some part of us is, us is fascinated you know, with what it might be like to, to try to get through life when perception is not operative. We've lost all of our perceptions. So to the extent that it's, it's working correctly, we're actually quite fortunate. It's a blessing. The difficulty arises as we grow and grow up. And our minds become uh, more and more complex, more and more sophisticated, Our conceptual worlds become more complex, more sophisticated, and we tend to lose sight of the underlying experiences behind our perceptions. So we stop taking out the chipmunk file from the cabinet and going over its contents. We just look at the label on the file and work from there, just working with the shorthand, with the perception. And we begin to relate uh, mainly or perhaps exclusively to chipmunks, to that experience we call chipmunk, through the lens of our perceptions about it. And that is ignorance. That's a kind of ignorance. Ignorance of the true nature of chipmunkness. 
not understanding clearly what it is that actually makes up what we call chipmunk. And because that generalizing of experiences, the mushing together of experiences happens so quickly and so automatically and so continuously and has been for so long in our lives, we usually just completely miss the fact that perception is happening. And that's also ignorance. Ignorance of the true nature of perception. Last week I spoke about how Vedana, that felt sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings, is very difficult to see in and of itself because of how it gets identified and merged with sense experience. It's very difficult to separate out from the underlying sense experience. And perception, I think, is even more difficult to see in and of itself for the same reason. Perceptions get so identified and so merged with our sense experiences in our ordinary way of relating to things. So, for example, I'm going to ask you a question and see what the first thing is that pops into your mind. What is on this rock? It's already appeared. (laughs) Whatever it was that was going to pop into your mind, it's already done it. So it can be interesting to see what comes up. Buddha statue, or flower. It could be interesting to see which one of those things captures our attention first. Is it possible, I mean, just like with the Big Dipper, is it possible to look up here and not see those things? Right? There's the Buddha. There's the flower. You know, perception is doing its job. Thank goodness. The untrained worldling someone who hasn't cultivated mindfulness, hasn't really investigated or explored their experience, tends to only notice pleasure and pain at the extremes. I spoke about this last week. So if something is pleasant enough, you know, intense enough pleasure, then we notice it. If something is painful enough, the pain's intense enough, then we notice it. But most of the mild sensations, uh, most if not all of the neutral sensations, we tend to just completely miss. They fly under the radar. With perception, the untrained worldling who hasn't heard about perception, hasn't cultivated mindfulness of perception, will probably never notice it at all. It just won't become apparent. So perception and sense stimulus get all mixed up together in our minds, and we don't see, unless we look, that they're actually separate and distinct strands of experience. If that were the only complication involved with perception, (laughs) it would be enough. But there's more. So it may also be that whenever we watch a chipmunk uh, nibbling on its nut or scurrying about the rocks, uh, a sensation of pleasant feeling arises. Maybe also a desire to keep watching that chipmunk or to have more contact with it in some way. So into our chipmunk folder that already has kind of our our base perception of that experience, we add some additional notes. We add maybe the perception of pleasantness. We add the perception of desirability. We add the perception that this experience is one that can provide us with gratification, satisfaction, that this experience is one that can make us happy which moves us into the territory then of um, ignorance with a capital I. (laughs) Big ignorance. Big misperceptions. Perceiving pleasure and gratification in experiences that really are not able to provide them in a lasting way. We could think of this as the opposite of recognizing dukkha. (laughs) It's kind of an anti-insight. The anti-first noble truth. Uh, the perception that this experience can really make me happy. It's really satisfying in some way. And that misperception is what's called sanya vipalasa, which is a distortion of perversion, a distortion of perception or perversion of perception is how it's usually translated. It's a misperception but not just an ordinary misperception like the snake and the rope, but a big misperception. (laughs) Really getting something seriously wrong, coming to the wrong conclusions based on our perceptions. 
the Vipalasa Sutta, which describes these, says these four are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view, sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure and suffering, assuming self where there is no self, and sensing the unlovely is lovely. Gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceive with distorted minds, bound in the bondage of Mara, those people are far from safety. They're beings that go on flowing, going again and again from death to birth. So when we're unaware of perception, when we're unmindful of perceptions, then our vision of the world becomes clouded with misperceptions, with distorted perceptions. And that leads to ignorance and confusion and suffering. But perception also has an important role to play in cultivating wisdom and moving towards less suffering when we're mindful of perceptions and when we use the faculty of perception itself as a tool to see how things really are. In fact, we could think of Vipassana, we could think of insight meditation as a retraining of perception. That's very much what we're doing here. Learning to see things in different ways. That's what Vipassana means, seeing things differently, which is really about learning to perceive things in different ways. One way of thinking about the fourth foundation of mindfulness, for those of you that are familiar with it, is it's a set of things that the Buddha highly recommended we train the mind to be able to perceive. You know, it's sometimes hard to make sense of that fourth foundation of mindfulness. Why that particular set of things? You know, it includes the enlightenment factors and the hindrances, which Caroline's been speaking about. It includes the aggregates and the six sense bases, the various strands of our experience. And it includes the four noble truths. So these are the, the things, the aspects of experience, the elements of experience that the Buddha said if we can learn to recognize those, if we can learn to identify their features, their characteristics, learn to perceive them in our experience directly, they will clear away the confusion and ignorance and suffering caused by the the distortions of perception, caused by our misperceptions. So in a way it's a correcting of perception, a bringing of perception into alignment with the truth of how things really are. Left to follow its natural course, perception generalizes and groups experiences together, but with skillful effort, it can also be directed to take them back apart again, to deconstruct them. And again, this is the general approach that the Buddha taught over and over again, in different ways, from different angles. How to take the cart apart, how to deconstruct it into the box, into the wheels, into the axles, into whatever else goes into a cart, (laughs) to understand what's behind the perception of cart that we get fooled by. So we use the practice to relearn how to perceive the different elements of experience that for so long have been mushed together, (laughs) inseparable. We pay attention to the body carefully, mindfully, until we're able to recognize and perceive the earth element, the fire element, air, water. We pay attention to Vedana carefully, mindfully, until we're able to recognize and perceive pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutrality, and so on, with all of the different strands of experience. So little by little, we learn to separate our ordinary, habitual, generalized perceptions from our actual sense experiences, and instead perceive the sense experiences directly, This is what we call seeing the specific characteristics, the specific characteristics of experience. What is actually the experience, the characteristic of this moment? Heat, movement, sadness, joy, uh, which is rarely as easy as it sounds, (laughs) being able to do that. That's not nearly so simple as taking apart the cart. I often share uh, a story from the early years of my practice uh, when I was working 
on, on learning how to train the perception to pick up on a momentary experience, actually uh, detect the characteristics of my moment-to-moment experience, um, and having a, a big challenge when it came to the emotional field. Uh, I came into the practice with very little what's now called emotional intelligence, <laughs> very cut off from my emotional life, um, relating to my emotional life in a very intellectualized and abstract way. So the way in which I would be able to tell that I was feeling a particular emotion when I first came to practice was through my thoughts. You know, if I was having thoughts that had an angry story in them, then I would assume I was angry. If I was having thoughts that had a story of lust in them, then I would assume I was feeling lust, and kind of like that. That was how I could tell what I was feeling. But as I, you know, did the practice, began trying to direct the attention, the perception back to the present moment, I found that I was totally mystified (laughs) by my emotions. I would go into my interviews and say, you know, I have this burning feeling around my heart. You know, I have no idea what it is. (laughs) What do you think it is? (laughs) How can I figure out what it is? And the teacher would say, okay, just keep noticing it, <laughs> you know. And then I'd come, I'd come in and I'd say, you know, there's something going on in my mind. I don't, I don't know what it is, but there's a certain feeling there, you know. And this went on uh, for a long time <laughs> until I gradually, you know, began to be, be able to retrain the perception to pick up on, okay, you know, these are the sensations in the body that signal anger. These are the, this is the texture of mind that signals anger. And to be able to come to really know my emotions in something other than a purely conceptual way. It was a long learning process. So it may be a long time before we can be consistently aware of um, our direct experience separate from our ordinary perceptions um, or to be able to recognize perception itself. Uh, Very often we have blind spots you know, perceptions that uh, it can take a long time to come into view because they're deeply conditioned and strongly held. <laughs> They've been clung to a lot. So little by little, we bring them into view and learn to be able to see them for what they are. It's when perception decouples from other phenomena, when we're able to see the perception separate from the different strands of sense experience, that insight actually becomes possible. Many of us have used the uh, noting technique taught by uh, Mahasi Sayada and Sayada Upandita especially. They were big proponents of the noting technique. And some of us love it, some of us hate it, (laughs) some of us are ambivalent about it. Um, But there's a reason for that approach, there's a reason for that technique. It's actually said that strong perception is the proximate cause for the arising of mindfulness. Strong perception is the proximate cause for the arising of mindfulness. So it's possible to use perception to retrain perception in this skillful way to actually direct the attention to the present moment. If we're actually perceiving something that we can also directly sense in that moment. And that's the way that some of us find that technique helpful. And it's interesting to see the arc of learning to apply that technique. It does tend to have a, a certain kind of evolution as we work with it. When we first start, it's all, almost always very heavy, very heavy-handed. You know, loud voice in our head saying over and over again, rising, falling, rising, falling, or whatever we're noting. So... The noting at that point is not yet at the level of perception, but more at the level of fully realized thought. You know, we're actually kind of deliberately, heavily, concretely thinking what it is we're noticing. And also the notes aren't, the notes themselves, the labels that we're using aren't really at the level of direct experience either. We're more just noticing the perceptions, the broader perceptions, the the labels and the file folders rather than the contents. As we continue to experiment with the noting, then we might see that that voice quiets down. It gets more subtle. It gets closer to the level of just simple perception, closer to the level of just simply acknowledging the recognition that's happening automatically anyway. 
and we get further away from those very loud, very deliberate concepts that we're, we'd been overlaying. And we may also see that the perceptions themselves become more refined. So rather than noticing that perception of the rising of the abdomen, we start to be able to perceive the ingredients of it, the components of it, the, the stretching, the tension, the pressure, the relaxation, the softening, the loosening. And we may see how the noting technique itself brings perception right to front and center. So we also become more mindful of the perception itself because the noting technique is, is putting it right there, right in front of us. So more and more we can separate it out or see how to separate it out from the sense experience. The, the noting technique is not helpful for everyone or all the time, so I'm not trying to convert anybody to the noting technique. That's not, not my goal here. I just wanted to point out that, that connection that it has to the retraining of perception, which is an essential part of the path to insight, whether we get there through the noting technique or through some other way. You know, there's other ways to also accomplish that same task. The retraining of our perception to be able to recognize dhammas, the specific qualities of our moment-to-moment experience, is necessary for the arising of insight. And so it has a name. It's called Nama Rupa Parichedanyana. Nama Rupa Parichedanyana one of those great compound words, uh, which translates roughly as the insight or the wisdom that's able to clearly distinguish mental and physical phenomena as they are. So being able to clearly see those different strands of experience separate from an overlay of perception. We are able to see heat as just heat, pleasure as just pleasure, perception as just perception, and so on which may not sound like much, but that's actually what we need to accomplish in order for insight to arise. As we rest in the flow of moment-to-moment direct experience, perception will then begin gradually to gather new information because we're perceiving differently. We're we're vipassanaing, we're seeing things differently. So the mind can gather, gather different information than what it's used in the past to form our familiar perceptions. So it may begin to notice uh, that moment of experience that changed, that disappeared. And that one also. Oh, and this one also. And this one also. Uh, And the same for a few more million moments of experience. Hmm, they all changed. Uh, Until eventually that faculty of perception forms a new perception, forms a new impression oh, everything's impermanent, (laughs) a different perception. So then perception can update the files, and instead of marking them permanent, it starts stamping them impermanent. Instead of marking them satisfying, nope, this one's unsatisfying. (laughs) Starts updating all the information. And that's how we clear away the distortions of perception, the, the misperceptions that we've developed through ignorance by replacing them with accurate perceptions of things as they truly are. And in fact, the word sanya, the word we translate as perception, this third of the five aggregates of clinging, is the one that's used in the teachings to talk about the way in which the truth is known through insight. So it says the perception of impermanence, the perception of dukkha, the perception of emptiness. That's how it's talked about. That's what we're cultivating. I'll just end with a story. This is the story of the Venerable Kema. In the time of the Buddha, a daughter was born into an aristocratic family of Sagala, and it's said that she had a golden complexion, and they named her Kema, which means filled with peace. And she grew up to be exceptionally beautiful and eventually ended up marrying King Bimbisara of Magadha, became one of his principal wives, Uh, King Bimbasara, as you may know, being a very enthusiastic uh, disciple and supporter of the Buddha. And because of his love for her, King Bimbasara was eager for Kema to hear the Buddha's teachings and to realize the benefits of the Dharma. However, Kema loved beauty above all things, 
especially her own. And she had some idea through hearing other people in the palace speaking of the kinds of teachings that the Buddha was giving out and didn't think that she would particularly enjoy them. And in fact, every time that the king arranged for her to accompany him to see the Buddha, she managed to find some way to get out of it. Until eventually the king uh, got tricky and he convinced her to go with him to visit the gardens at Jetta's Grove by extensively praising their beauty and the, the delights of their sights and sounds and smells. Um, and Kema didn't realize that this was just happened to be Anattapindaka's monastery, where the Buddha was staying. So they got there, and when Kema realized that she'd been uh, outmaneuvered by the king <laughs> into visiting the Buddha and hearing a sermon, she was none too pleased but her attention was soon captured by a stunningly beautiful young woman, dressed and adorned in the first style of elegance, who was standing beside the Buddha and uh, gracefully fanning him as he spoke. And looking at her, Kema was sure that this woman was even more beautiful than she herself was, and she was both astonished and envious. What is that? <laughs> Perception. <laughs> so rather than listening to what the Buddha was saying uh, as he gave his discourse, Kama kept her inten- attention entirely focused on this beautiful young woman. She became rapt and then astonished again as the woman began to age before her eyes. Her complexion dimmed, her skin wrinkled, her hair turned gray, her magnific- magnificent figure drooped for this woman was, of course, a projection created by the Buddha for Kama's benefit. And as she witnessed this transformation, without even thinking about it or intending it, Kama's perception shifted from the misperception of beauty and permanence to the true perception of inevitable decay and emptiness. And she began to pass through the stages of enlightenment. And that very day, She became an arahant, a fully enlightened being. (laughs) Kemas is one of the very few cases reported in the canon of a person attaining full enlightenment before actually joining the monastic order. Um, But the Buddha, of course, realized what had happened, and he told King Bimbisara that Kema could no longer lead a worldly life, that she would either have to ordain or pass out of the world and attain parinibbana, so... Uh, the king very graciously gave her permission to ordain and join the the nun's order, uh, where she became a very important assistant to Mahapajapati, the leader of the nun's sangha, and was said by the Buddha, uh, along with another nun, to be foremost in wisdom among all of the ordained nuns. Let's end by reflecting on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.